it's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After this episode, go to ChristianQuestions.com to check out other episodes, Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more. Today's topic is, we are what we think about, so what are we thinking about? Coming up in this episode, the human mind is always thinking and processing even when we sleep. Our brains think so much that we take them for granted. We as Christians are called to a higher standard of living and therefore a higher standard of thinking. So how do we better think about what we think about? Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years, and Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for this episode? Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Most of us don't realize just how much of our lives come down to our personal choices. We have far more power over how we handle our everyday experiences than we give ourselves credit for. Why wouldn't we claim this power so we can better influence our path? Because we subtly and regularly fall into habits of thinking that lull us into a lukewarm and compliant attitude of submission. The Apostle Paul was all about helping us as his fellow disciples of Christ challenge the status quo, and reset our minds so we can daily think and choose with spiritual clarity. Much of the letter he wrote to the Philippian Christians focused in on the adverse conditions in life and how to think through them. Examining this letter is the first step to better focusing our thinking. Paul was imprisoned by Rome twice in the last years of his life. The first time was a two-year house arrest when he wrote four letters to the Brotherhood that Christians refer to as the prison letters or prison epistles. Philippians is the first one. We're looking at it now. And there was also Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And we also believe he wrote the book of Hebrews during this time. What we're going to do today is think about thinking. In the book of Philippians, the question we want to ask ourselves to put this in perspective is, what does the Apostle Paul teach us about our thinking long before he tells us to think or dwell on these things? Remember, the theme scripture is dwell on these things. What does he tell us before that to get us focused in? Paul begins by expressing his confidence in his brethren within the context of his own imprisonment. Philippians 1, 6 through 11 Let's begin with verses 6 and 7. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So he's got this real strong community with the Philippian Christians, and he's letting them know right at the beginning of this this epistle, this letter to them, that I feel this way about you, that God can finish the work that he's begun in you because you are faithful. You have been working alongside of me. Let, let's pick up with verses 8 through 11. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless unto the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The church at Philippi was the first congregation Paul had established in northern Greece. He knew these brethren personally. In many ways, this is a love letter from the Apostle Paul. He was passionate about the growth and development of these brethren in Christ, and he pours his heart out to them. Now, he shares his spiritually positive perspective in spite of his physically limiting experience. Philippians 1, 12 to 13, Paul says this, Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Everyone knew Paul. We can imagine people saying, there's a man in that house who's a Christian, and he doesn't stop talking or preaching. (laughs) He is endlessly encouraging those constantly coming to see him. He doesn't stop. (laughs) There's something about him that's different. And that house arrest allowed visitors to come and go. And what an attitude. You know, here Paul can't go to where he wants to go, but he's thrilled because this lockdown has presented an unexpected, tremendous witness for the gospel. Imprisonment will not affect his ability to rejoice. We were all locked down in COVID just a few years ago. Did we find ways to praise God and witness the gospel in spite of our limitations? Yeah, Paul is this witnessing machine that (laughs) they think, aha, we've now got him, we'll keep him quiet. No, he'll just find another way because the most important thing always remained the most important thing with him. And this is how he begins the, the letter to the Philippians with this kind of very profound encouragement. Jonathan, let's continue. He shares the spiritual dilemma of true and mature discipleship, Philippians 1, 21 and 22. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. Paul didn't know if he would be released from prison or executed. Here's a wonderful dilemma. He says, I really want to be with the Lord in heaven But if I stay here, there's still more fruitful labor that I can do and accomplish. I both want to be there and I want to be here. And when you think about it, Paul is talking about either dying or living. And he's basically saying, it's okay either way. I just want to do the will of God. And in either place, in either circumstance, with either result, I can be fruitful and continue to represent that which I have been called to do. So he's showing this spiritual dilemma, saying this is a good thing. We all should have, trying to adopt this kind of dilemma. Julie, let's continue. Having stated confidence now in the brotherhood and having shared his insights on spiritually processing our physical lives, he now admonishes the brotherhood towards unified behavior in Philippians 1.27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So here the Apostle Paul is going to begin building a case for unity. And continuing with the thought, 
This unified approach pays particular attention to others within the brotherhood above ourselves. Philippians 2, 2 and 3. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing for selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do you want to make the Apostle Paul happy? Here's how. Have this selfless love to build up one another. Paul sent them his most trusted co-workers to help them keep this oneness of purpose in the Spirit. So he is showing them how much he loves them. He's reminding them of his imprisonment. He's talking about this, this discipleship that will not stop at anything. And he's drawing them into this. He's saying, you're like me in this. This is important. Make my joy complete. I love you so much. I want you to be and, and experience the things that I am experiencing as I serve Christ, even if it looks really bad at this point. Julie, what's next? Well, he then presses to have this spiritually sound behavior extend outside the brotherhood as well. Philippians 2, 14 to 16, he continues with, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. We, he's saying, are connected lights to each other and to that dark world that's outside. Do we ever think of appearing as a light in a crooked and perverse world? We should because we'll represent better. This is why we're supposed to be different, why we're supposed to have one standard, no matter our circumstances. So it's obvious that the faithfulness of these Philippian brethren was really important to Paul. He's provoking them in a positive way. He's putting the challenge upon them. Prove yourselves to be what you say that you are. And this, this is all about how we think about and process things. Prove yourself to be those blameless and innocent children of God that stand differently in a world that's all messed up. And you know, our world is messed up. His world was too. And what he is telling to them, we need to take upon ourselves and say, this applies to me here and now. It's a tremendous, tremendous uh, um, inspiration to stand higher outside of the brotherhood where everybody else can see you. In this context, Paul draws attention to Timothy and Epaphroditus. Both were living testimonies of the highest examples of Christian brotherhood to the brotherhood and especially to Paul. Philippians 2, 19 and 20. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That's Timothy, but Paul had another faithful worker. Epaphroditus delivered gifts from the Philippians to Paul in this prison state. And in return, it's thought that Epaphroditus is the one who delivered this letter that Paul wrote back to the Philippians. Let's listen to the five qualities of high spiritual maturity given to Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, 25 to 27. Again, this is Paul writing. But I thought it necessary to send you, Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, it's the same word translated as apostle here, 
and minister to my need because he was longing for you all. You have these qualities. Now, he talked about Timothy, no one else of kindred spirit like Timothy. That's why he's important as a messenger to you. And Epaphroditus, brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister to my, the Apostle Paul, Paul's need. He's giving them examples of the things he just talked about. He's showing them this is true Christianity. Work together to achieve this kind of level in your own thinking. Paul concludes the first part of his letter with these simple words, Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. So you think that, okay, the letter is going to end now. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. But what he's doing is he's finishing so he can start again. And this finally is saying, here's the basis. Here's the foundation. He has shown them the risks inherent in standing for the gospel. He's shown them the necessity of being mutually unified and the witness that such a spiritually driven life gives to the world around you. He then gave them two shining examples of all all of the above in Timothy and in Epaphroditus. He now shifts gears from what they can control to what they cannot control and admonishes them to be watchful. He has said to them up to this point, here are the things, focus on this, strive for that. Be stronger. Be more focused. Realize imprisonment doesn't have to be a bad thing. And now he's talking about things that are outside of their control. Julie, let's look at Philippians 3, 1 to 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. And that's an expression for someone with an impure mind. So beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I love the way he ends that. He says, we, you and I, you Philippian brethren and I, we are the true circumcision. We worship in the spirit of God and the glory of Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. He's not saying you got to learn to put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying, I know this is where you are. I just want to focus you on elevating your thinking to continuously higher levels because you already put no confidence in the flesh, but we don't want to stop there. We need to grow and improve. So Jonathan, we're thinking about thinking. So what do you think about that? (laughs) A Christian's thought process is to be an observationally driven process and not an emotionally driven reaction. Paul was in prison and observed the good that came from it. He encouraged the Philippian brother to think about their treatment of each other, their example to the world, and to those falsely representing Christ instead of reacting. Let us think before we act. And let us think before we react. The whole point of this is to put things in order and get your mind straight so your mind can guide you toward being praiseworthy and honorable to God our Father and Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Paul is being his usual thoughtful and motivational self as he is teaching us how to think. What a great example. Paul has laid a foundation of Christian thought and examples, so now What does he build on that foundation? As we have seen so many times before, the Apostle Paul was a perceptive, thoughtful, logical, and spiritually sound teacher. His next level of instruction will be along the lines of comparing our 
earthly lives with their perceived successes with the solid and scripturally sound opportunities we as disciples have in Christ. Again, the Apostle Paul is about to give us something to think about. Paul's resume was very impressive. As Saul, he was called a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had a religious pedigree as a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, so he's generationally a Pharisee. He was well-educated in Jewish law, but he received a classical Roman education. As a Roman citizen, he was special because he had legal, social, and political advantages that the other apostles didn't. That allowed him to go preach throughout the Roman world as what was called the apostle to the Gentiles. He had it all. Paul continues building his encouragement towards thoughtful Christianity with pointed comparisons of past successes with the opportunities of Christian enlightenment. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Let's start with verses 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all these things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. So, Julie, what you talked about, about the Apostle Paul's past, it was a tremendous resume of success and honor and respect within the Jewish community. And now he's saying, I look at that, I look at that, and it's like having a little plastic toy instead of the real thing. It's a little plastic replica that's all kind of cracked and broken, and, and it's like, what do I want this for? It's, it's, no, throw this away, because now I have the real thing. And what's the real thing? The real thing is Christ. And he says, that pedigree, that honor is rubbish in terms of where I am privileged to be placed and grow. And he continues in verses 9 through 11 with these thoughts. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You notice how in this verse, he is focusing on the righteousness of Jesus because he didn't righteously fulfill the law. He's focusing on uh, the, the basis of faith because he wasn't truly faithful to what the law said. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, the being conformed to his death. He's focusing in on all of the costs of being a Christian because he realizes this is the real thing. This is actually honestly, genuinely serving God. So he puts this out there and says, what I was, I wasn't serving God. What God has given me now, I can, and I will, and I must serve God. Julie, let's continue. Well, based on that, what's the action going to be? So now Paul focuses that thoughtful comparison on the action that's necessary in order to attain that true Christian reward. We pick it up with Philippians 3, 12 to 14. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Think about it. We have this incredible awareness in what we need to do, which is conforming to Christ likeness. Paul's plainly saying that he's still a work in progress. Mm -hmm. And if he is, 
so are we. Amen. For sure. (laughs) And continuing with verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Even the great apostle Paul, had to continue to press on and stay focused, or he would lose his heavenly reward, what the King James Version calls the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And again, you see the focus on what I currently am is not good enough. I need to work harder. I need to press forward. In his previous life, what he was was pretty good is what everybody liked. He was the guy. And here he's saying, no, none of that is any longer true. There's something important and it requires putting the thought in place and then taking the action of moving forward and continuing to move forward. Jonathan, what's next? He next calls us to the same action that he is dedicated to while warning us to remain observant. Philippians 3, 17 and 18. Brethren, Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, Paul is instructing, be careful and follow only those who follow Christ Jesus. So today, when we see churchianity pushing tradition, ceremony, and many other distractions, We need to be very leery. This is just like what the Pharisees and scribes did. And when you think about it, what Paul just said previously in this this third chapter, as he talked about what he was, and there was a lot of pomp and circumstance with what he was, and what he is now is very different. Let's not go back to that. Let's continue with where he is and where he's helping us to go. So where is he helping us to go? Well, Paul now gets personal. Our foundation's clear, and we each need to personally live up to the highest standards, Philippians 4, 1 to 3. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Earlier, he emphasized, remember how unity was crucial? He said, being of the same mind, maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent in one purpose. He's now going to drop in an issue that had to be big enough if word of it reached Paul so far away under house arrest. Two women in the church were at odds. So he writes in verses two to three, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, and that's likely Epaphroditus who delivered this letter, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. From this short uh, few sentences, we can gather that these two women had a very serious disagreement. And part of how to achieve unity was having the other members of the church help them. Now, that's an interesting admonition. But notice he just doesn't dwell on this situation. He says it. It's said. That's all he needed to say. Help them. We move on. And this short mention of names has served its purpose, and now it's on to briefly recapping some of his most important points and giving his readers a powerful source of spiritual comfort. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. 
The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoicing in the Lord always. Not some of the time, not just when things are going our way. Paul lived with an attitude of always rejoicing in the Lord. You know, when you think about what he says here in verses 4 to 7, it's right after he mentions those two names. These are some of the verses that we always read and we love to quote, and they really are inspirational. It's in the context of helping these two sisters in Christ get it together. And he also says that they were helpful to him in the course of the gospel. So it's not like they're bad. It's like, no, they're precious. They're precious. Help them so that precious character of theirs can be focused. And then he says to everybody, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known. Let your gentle spirit be known. We know when we're at odds with somebody, we don't have a gentle spirit. But he's, this is what he's saying. Here's where we want to go. Be anxious for nothing. Let your request be named known to God and let the peace of God guard your hearts and your minds. And he's in, 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 in a veiled sense referring back to those two sisters, but to everybody else. These are the most important things. Don't focus in on the problem. Focus in on the solution and the unity and the spiritual growth that comes from all of that. Let's go further, Julie. Remember when you talked about that there was that finally? Well, yes. we're about to come on to a second finally. Okay. Uh, Paul now introduces the second ending of this letter. And this ending is actually the beginning of what we are now going to focus on our thinking as true Christians. And this is one of my top three favorite scriptures. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Rick and Jonathan, I say this scripture out loud to forcefully redirect my thinking at times when I'm angry, nervous, or approaching a temptation. So if there's no spiritual excellence, put it away from you. So you take this scripture literally with you and it comes out when there's a void that needs to be filled very quickly. That's kind of what you're saying, right? That's right. If my mind's thinking one way, saying it out loud redirects me to the right thing. And that is one of the primary reasons we have the written gospel, so that we can do that with the scriptures. And, uh, and this is a finally. So this is, you pay attention when Paul says, okay, finally, I'm just, I'm going to wrap this up. And what he gives us here is he gives us these really, powerful admonitions to to bring with us to check our hearts to check our minds so we can rise up higher in a christ-like fashion as with so many other scriptural lists that the writers of the new testament have given us we want to look at this dwell on these things list as somewhat progressive and very very connected in other words the first point helps us to see and apply the second point the second point helps us see and apply the third point and so forth and so on what we want to see is the connectedness and the approach to these things. This, we have this wonderful list of eight directions to focus our thought. Eight different ways, eight points to focus our thoughts on. So before we start at the beginning, 
let's go to the instruction at the very end. And if this sounds like we're confusing it, we're actually making it simpler. Trust me, stay with us. We're making it simpler by going to the end so we can understand the beginning. Jonathan, let's go to Philippians uh, 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, dwell on these things. This is the key definition for everything. The word for dwell or think means to take an inventory, that is, estimate. The Thayer's Greek English lexicon says to reckon, count, to take into account. The Greek word here is logizomai, and the lexicon gives this example. This word deals with reality. If I logizomai or reckon that my bank account has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. Otherwise, I'm deceiving myself. This word refers to facts, not suppositions. This is a word based on fact and not emotional wishes. To dwell on these things is like putting them on an Excel spreadsheet to take an inventory of these things. Excel spreadsheets have no room for opinion. They're just numbers. They have no room for fantasy or wishes. It's just a recounting of that which is being reported as true. That's how we want to say dwell on these things. Excel spreadsheet these things. Make them fundamentally sound that you can count on in your thinking. Let's look, Jonathan, very quickly at two examples, uh, other examples of this word for dwell. Philippians 3.13. Brethren, I do not regard, the word for regard here is the same word translated dwell or think, myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting that lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. In other words, I calculate myself to have not gotten there yet. Paul is making a calculated observation on his own life using facts and logic, not emotion. And here's the second example, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love doesn't keep inventory of the wrongs others commit. To dwell is to keep inventory, is to make something sound and powerful. To dwell on these things is to put them into the center of our thinking. It's to make them of a highly calculated and proven value. Dwell on these things. These things, as we're, we're going to begin to get into, these things we will see have intrinsic, powerful, foundational value in the mind of any Christian under any circumstance at any time in your experience. So, Jonathan, thinking about thinking, where are we? A Christian's thinking is to be intentional. Ideally, it is not to be swayed by the ever-changing circumstances and emotions of life. Rather, it is to be focused, calculating, and discerning process. Let us think before we act. And let us think before we react. Let us have that Excel spreadsheet of what is sound in our hearts and minds to refer to that as something that we see as so important to focus on. Paul is setting up a lasting and life-changing approach to spiritual growth and maturity. All we need to do... <laughs> All we need to do is pay attention and apply what we learn. Paul has laid down a broad base of challenges for every Christian to face. 
How does he encourage our coping with and overcoming them? As we've already mentioned, the Apostle will now show us what to build our thought foundation upon. Once established, he will then show us how to systematically build a scripturally sound Christian thought process. The focal points he lays out give us a practical and practicable spiritual perspective. It's practical, and it's something that we can actually work on, work with, work through as we approach our daily lives. Jonathan, let's go back to Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true. The word for true or truth means exactly what it says. It's a very general and broadly used word. There's nothing more to be said. It's true. It's truth. We believe that the apostle is using this word for true in a, like we said earlier, somewhat broad sense. He's setting a foundation of what we should be thinking about. And you know what's at the very foundation of that? It's truth. That's what he's saying. Truth is out the foundation. Finally, brethren, whatever is true. Let's look at John 8, 31 to 32. This is Jesus talking to us about truth. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Knowing the truth makes you free. Knowing the truth, quote-unquote, for that word, is a broad-based statement about knowing God and the breadth of his plan. It's a very big application. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, there's a broadness to this application. To dwell upon truth makes it much easier and more instinctive to speak truth. And that's the same with anything. If you find yourself dwelling on something a lot, you'll find it's a whole lot easier to spew it out of your mouth. Now, we can either spew stuff out of our mouth or we can speak pearls of wisdom because we're dwelling on God's truth. Take your time. Decide what you want to pick. But in the, in the meantime, let's look at Ephesians four fifteen to 16. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Okay, but speaking the truth in love, the problem is how do we determine what's the truth? You know, these days there's so much false information planted as truth, and with artificial intelligence poised to add a lot more confusion, often when we search for truth, we're just filling in the gaps of our own preconceived ideas. But that's just finding comfort in confirming our expectations. We recommend listening to episode 1267, What is Truth? That's an important statement. We need to understand what truth is that is irrefutable no matter what time of, of, of history you're, you're, you're looking at it from, no matter what perspective you have, no matter what experience you have. That's the kind of truth. We want that truth that never, ever ever changes. And what we find with this kind of truth is the truth that we're to dwell upon because it is always true, no matter who, no matter what, no matter when, no matter why, no matter where, it has a transforming power all of its own. Jesus explains that to us in John chapter 17, verses 17 to 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. You know, sanctify means we are to set, be set apart for a holy purpose. That's an important aspect. And Jesus, remember, in John 17, he's praying for all of his followers to be set apart by truth. That's a big, big part of what our lives in Christ are supposed to be focused on. It's the truth of the gospel. That's what we're talking about here. Nothing less than that. Julie, go ahead. So the question is, where do we find truth? John 17, Jonathan, you just read it. Your word is truth. So we know we've got to go to scriptural uh, guidance in order to find that truth. Is that right? And that's the point. There is one source. It is not the traditions of the churches. It is not what we'd like it to be. It's not us filling in the gaps. It is the truth of the word of God. Don't add to it. Don't try to add to it. Don't try to subtract from it. Accept it as it is. Your word is truth, and that has the power to set us apart. So having God's spirit is a key to abandoning our own reactive ways of looking at spiritual things so we can find and follow God's truth. We need to get rid of the reactions and get into the responses, the well-thought-out approach to the gospel. Let's look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. We'll start with verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Well, in other words, don't get stuck in useless debates. And that goes back to what I said earlier, where it looks like you are trying to fill in the gaps to prove your own point. But it's about God's truth, not trying to reinforce our own truth. That's a tremendous trap. And especially today, folks, we, have, uh, we are living in a time where my truth supersedes everything else. And that is fundamentally incorrect when it comes to being a Christian. It's not my truth. It's the truth of God through the word, through his word, through the word of God. Why would we do this? Why would we get into this, this, this idea of, of, of trying to, 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 to wrangle? Because we get tied up in our own thinking. We're confusing our truth with God's truth. And Christians can do that. Don't think just because you're a Christian, everything you think is God's way. It's not. We have to rise up a level. And that's where verse 15 of 2 Timothy comes into play. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You know, we were warned in Proverbs 30, 5 and 6, not to add or take away from God's word. It is complete within itself. It is. And that's the beauty of this. You don't have to be creative. We just have to be attentive. We have to be teachable so that that word of truth can come to us. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, that's what we're talking about here. Whatever is true, dwell, take an accounting of those things. That's why true truth is the first thing on this incredible list of mind-focusing uh, 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 points to, to look at. So, Jonathan, we're looking at thinking about thinking. What do we have? 
A mature Christian's thoughts will always strive to see and respond to any input based upon the truth of God and his righteousness and not an emotional reaction. This one result of dwell on these things provides a fundamental change in how we interact with the world. Let us think before we act. And let us think before we react. Let us put this all in order. Let's continue, Jonathan, back to Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, and next the apostle says, whatever is honorable. The word for honorable means venerable. Now, now there's a word we don't often use. <laughs> venerable means accorded a great deal of respect, especially because of age, wisdom, or character. Bible commentary from Barnes Notes on the Whole Bible says the word honorable was originally used in relation to the gods and to the things that pertain to them as being worthy of honor or veneration. As applied to men, it commonly means grave, dignified, worthy of veneration or regard. Uh, it's interesting how the Greek word was originally used in relation to their false gods. Yeah. The world has created a new set of what is true, honorable and just so sad. You know, God's word is truth. You don't get to honorable until it passes the test of first being true. It's not true and, and it's not really honorable. Those other gods were, weren't real and they were not worthy of honoring. Exactly. That word uh, venerable reminds me of the recent coronation of King Charles. There were over-the-top rituals, elaborate ceremonies, uh, some estimates cost uh, $125 million, partially paid for by ordinary taxpayers. Now, extravagant kings aren't new in history, but much of the pomp invoked God and religion. And I would think the Apostle Paul would have been just sick over the gold, the robes, the jewels, the expense, the showiness. This wasn't what he meant when he advised the church at Philippi to think on things true and honorable. So this idea of honorable is a very, very high level. And he's using a, a, a word to describe this venerability, this, this, this commanding of respect, things that command respect, but he's putting it in the context of what is true. In the eyes of humanity, like you guys were just talking about, with all of humanity's perspectives and experiences and opinions, and many things may be considered honorable or venerable. This is why it's built upon truth, foundational, godly, scriptural truth. You have that first, and then look toward that, which is honorable or venerable. Julie, this word is used just a few other times in the New Testament. Give us a summation of those uses. And all the other times it shows us the seriousness of this venerability as a Christian character trait. First Timothy and Titus tell us that deacons must be honorable. Wives and even older men must be honorable, venerable. Interestingly, only the Apostle Paul uses this particular Greek word as he was the apostle to the Gentiles. So his audience would have understood its meaning. And, and it's, it's interesting that the other uses of this word were in relation to individuals being honorable. So when it says think on these things, you can you can draw from that. Think on anything which is honorable, but think on those who show you godly honor based on godly truth. So you really can expand this. So let's look at one example of an honorable action in scripture. Jesus, when he was silent before his accusers as the prophecy said he would be, he spoke to the high priest in his own defense 
only to honor the law. L- listen to this carefully. Matthew 26, 62 through 64. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you. Adjure means to extract an oath, as in, I am proclaiming you under oath to answer this question. Continuing, by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus would not speak a word in his own defense until he was put under oath under the Jewish law to speak. And he honored that law. And that, what he said there, was what brought them to his crucifixion. So you see that he honored that which was highest so the will of God could be done. And so we could look at his example and say, this is honorable. This is what it means to be honorable, to think on what Jesus did, think on those things because he was fulfilling the will and the word of God. So Jonathan, once again, we're thinking about thinking, and I know what you think, but tell us more about what you think. (laughs) A mature Christian's thoughts will seek to dwell on the nobility of truly honorable acts that have a solid basis on the righteousness of God's truth. While it is appropriate to encourage any and all things that tend towards honor, the dwelling place for our thoughts is to be on higher things. Let us think before we act. And let us think before we react. Our dwelling place for our thoughts needs to be on higher things. That's where our thoughts must dwell. We're only introducing this pattern that the Apostle Paul is unfolding, and it's already showing us a profound step up from our normal reactions. Dwelling on that which is true and honorable is a powerful beginning. Where should our thoughts dwell from there? As the Apostle continues to expand this list of spiritually sound qualities of thinking, he will be demonstrating the importance of consistency in thought. It becomes immediately obvious that these qualities must not only always be present in what we dwell on, they must always be at the forefront of that which we dwell on. It's important to keep them where they belong. Dwell on these things. Jonathan, let's go back to Philippians 4, 8, 9 and add the next piece. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, and now we add, whatever is right. The definition for right is equitable in character or act, by implication, innocent, holy. So you have this definition, equitable, innocent, or holy. And we look at this word in a similar fashion to the way we looked at the word for truth. It has a general, broad sense to it. So let's look at two other scriptural examples of using this word for right or just. Matthew, uh, let's start with Matthew 23, 28, and Jonathan, then we'll go to Acts 10, 22. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God, and of good report among all the nation of the Jews. You have in these two scriptures two uses of the word for 
uh, equitable or, or just. In the first scripture, it was talking about the Pharisees appearing to be right or just unto men, but they were full of hypocrisy and iniquity. In the second scripture, we have Cornelius the centurion, who wasn't even Jewish, being a just man, and it explains it, one who feared God, was of good report amongst the nations of the Jews. You see the difference. Both words are used, one to describe an appearance, the other to describe that which was real. But the focus was on that which is equitable, innocent, or holy. The commentary uh, from Albert Barnes says under whatsoever things are just, the things which are right between man and man. A Christian should be just in all his dealings. His religion does not exempt him from the strict laws which bind men to the exercise of this virtue. And there is no way by which a professor of religion can do more injury, perhaps, than by injustice and dishonesty in his dealings. And there's no easier way to have people doubt Christianity than to see a dishonest minister or priest. Oh, that's for sure. Uh, also, a Bible commentary from C.T. Russell, things might be true and honorable, yet not be just or equitable to others. Such must not be entertained, but must be repelled. And that gives us a very strong basis to realize that we can't take any one of these characteristics uh, out and keep it separate from the others. You, you, you can say that, like in that last commentary, you can have things that are true and honorable, true and venerable, but they may not be just, they may not be equitable. So put it aside. If it doesn't fit the whole picture, that's not where our minds as Christians are supposed to dwell. Jesus gives us a sound basis for equitable behavior, but we won't behave this way unless we think this way. Now, we're going to read a scripture uh, that everybody has quoted for generations and generations and generations, and it almost loses its meaning because it gets overquoted. Uh, Jonathan, let's go to Matthew seven twelve. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what we were always quoting. You teach your children. Everybody talks about it. It's a big, important thing. What he's saying is be equitable be holy, be innocent, be clear in what, how you treat others. But you can't treat others, truly treat others that way, unless you are thinking in such a way. To do it otherwise would be to, hip, to be hypocritical. And we can go into all kinds of examples of religiousness that hypocritically makes it look like they're good, makes it look like they're honorable and just, but they're not. The point that Jesus is making is do it because you think it. John, the Apostle John, gives us a practical application of how this equitable thought process can easily be overlooked. 1 John 3, 17-19. But whosoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before him. Notice how truth is such a big part of this verse. Notice how being equitable is also a part. If you've got goods and your brother or sister is going without and you just sort of just move on and, and, and look the other way, he, John is saying, you're not, you're not living the truth. 
whatsoever things are true, dwell on these things. You're not living that. Your thoughts are not going out to that individual who may be in need and saying, let me help you or let me guide you or let me teach you how to not be in the position you're in. Let me be a part of your life. This is being equitable. It means stepping out of your own existence and looking around and being willing to give when there's a need. It's such an important Christian principle, that of being right or just or innocent or holy. God, this, look, God's plan is built on this. Why would we do anything less than to be right and just? It would just have to think this through and see how it fits into the dwell. Let that, that Excel spreadsheet in your mind of things to, that are solid and sound, let being righteous and just and right be part of that. Jonathan, thinking about thinking, go. While a mature Christian's thoughts are founded in truth and gravitate towards things honorable, they must be equitable as well. This can be tricky as the human mind easily rationalizes towards that which is personally convenient and away from that which upholds godly standards of equity. Standing for God is standing for fairness. Let us think before we act. And you know what I'm going to say. Let us think before we react. Let us make sure that the fairness we look towards is based on godly principles of truth. We can create fairness on all kinds of levels, but it's got to be based on the godly scriptural principles of truth. Whatever is right, think on these things. Jonathan, what's next back in Philippians 4.8? Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, and now we're adding whatever is pure. Pure means properly, clean, that is figuratively innocent, modest, perfect. Bible commentary from Matthew Poole on pure says, keeping themselves undefiled in the way, undefiled from the pollution of sin and from the blemishes of filthy words and deeds. So that gets down in down and dirty, if you will. Talking. Literally. Yes, absolutely. And it's important to do that, whatever is pure, because Christianity is a different level than life. A, a, good, a good scripture to back up what that commentary just said is Matthew, uh, Matthew, uh, Psalm 119, verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So you have... A simple statement, how blessed are those whose way is blameless. What does that mean? It means that you are wherever you go, whatever you do, nobody can find fault with it because it's pure. That's the point. And if it's pure and on the basis of scriptural truth, it's got that honorable, venerable sense to it, and it's got that, 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 that just sense to it, think on that. Think on that which is pure in that area. Julie, let's go to another commentary. Sure. And just one quick comment. If you walk in the law of the Lord, that's you're walking in one path. Yes. You're not turning around. You're not reconsidering. There's not five paths in front of you. It's the straight and narrow path of pure. And it's not God's path and mine. It's his path that I get to walk on. Mm. You just got to be clear on that. Go ahead. Sure. Commentary by John Gill says, uh, under the, the sentence, whatsoever things are pure or chaste, in words or deeds, 
In other words, it's in opposition to all filthiness and foolish talking, to obscene words and actions, and how much of that is around us everywhere. Uh, the Vulgate Latin and Arabic versions render it as whatsoever things are holy. So I think that's that's really important. It promotes holiness or heart of life. And if our mind is set on what is pure, we're not going to participate in something that goes off a little bit this way or a little bit that way. And one example that comes to my mind is politics and how quickly that goes sour with dishonesty and secrets and self-promotion instead of Christ promotion. And that's such an easy thing to fall into because, see, politics gives you a sense of, okay, you have those who are in power and you want to have a say. If, if you can have a say, why wouldn't you want to have a say? And it's, you know, okay, I want, and I want to have this or that be part of the power structure. But what happens with power is corruption. Why? Because we're imperfect human beings. And purity gets lost in the corruption of power. So we need to understand that standing for those things which are pure means standing in a very, very narrow way. And this is the path, Julie, that you were talking about. God's path, not ours. So we can stand for something that's higher. Now, even if we focus on being equitable, that was the, the previous point, it doesn't mean we're always pure in thought and deed. True purity, where does it come from? We have to establish its source. Where does true purity come from? Let me give you a hint. It doesn't come from my head. It doesn't come from your head. It doesn't come from your experiences. It doesn't come from some textbook. James three sixteen and 17 tells us, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. So the wisdom from above is first pure. So just like our thoughts need to be first focused on and based on God's truth, that's pure truth unadulterated, unchanging truth of God himself. We must base our, our thoughts of purity based on the wisdom of God himself. Because you go to the source to find the purest uh, version of anything. You can't get more pure than something from God himself. That's where it comes from. Having that, true purity has to be implemented into our thoughts before it could be implemented into our actions. And if you think you're going to act purely while you're thinking impurely, you're hypocritically trying to cover something. God sees through it. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he puts personal purity into the broader context of caring for others. This is a really powerful verse. Jonathan, let's go to 1 Timothy 5, 21 to 22. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. And free from sin is the same word for pure. And what the apostle is talking about. So you can look at this two different ways. You can say, okay, he's telling him to do all these things, and then, by the way, also keep yourself free from sin. In other words, keep yourself pure. Or you can look at it and saying, keep yourself pure in doing the things I just explained to you. Keep yourself 
pure. Maintain these principles without bias. Keep yourself pure. Do nothing in the spirit of partiality. Keep yourself pure. Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily. Do not put anybody in a position of authority too hastily. Keep yourself pure by relying on the word of God and that which comes from above. That, I think, is what the apostle is teaching Timothy. Think, dwell on that which is pure in a godly sense. True purity needs to be a given when it comes to our Christian mind, heart, and actions. Final scripture here, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you as is proper among saints, and there must be no filthiness in silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We're to dwell on the true purity of godliness and not a skewed my way version of godliness. It's said, I just heard recently, that there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And most people will never read the first four. So if our thoughts are pure, our actions will follow. And if we are representatives of Christ, anything less is false and misleading. I like that. You are the final gospel that most people will, that's the only one they will ever see. What are they reading when they see you? Is it the purity of the will of God? Jonathan, finally, thinking about thinking. A mature Christian's thoughts are based in truth. Hold fast to that which is honorable and prioritize equitable standards. To focus our minds on purity is to apply all these things in a comprehensive sense. Prioritizing pure objects of thought is a significant challenge which needs to be met with prayerful humility. Let us think before we act. And let us think before we react. Folks, we've been given a basis for dwelling on the kinds of things that will change our Christian lives. We're given the idea of putting it all in perspective, what is true, honorable, right, and pure. In our next episode, we're going to be looking at whatever is lovely, of good repute. If there's any excellence, if there's any worthy thing, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. Make these things the viable basis of all of your thinking. And that's the pathway to faithfulness. So you don't want to miss the next episode because it helps us see this in a clearer perspective. What are we thinking about? And I'm going to ask you to think about it. And folks, as we close, as we close, uh, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. And again, coming up next week, we are what we think about. So what are we thinking about? Talk to you then.